Okay, hello everybody, and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Peter Wesley Salmon. Hope you are all doing good down in Guelph. And that's Southwest. <laughs> Hope you're repping for me. <laughs> repping um, for the salmon. Just, just so we're Keeping clear, that salmon it? fresh in the Southwest. Keeping that six, s- yo. <laughs> What does repping for salmon look like? Like, what does that entail? Um, uh, li- listening to end credits. Oh, is that all? That's that's the bar for entry. Yeah, that's about it. I, I guess eating less salmon too. <laughs> okay, great, great stuff. <laughs> what a way to start the show! What a what a what a way to rep for salmon. Anyway, uh. That is what we do. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be in the new period comedy drama The Holdovers, which you can now see at a theater near you. Uh, that's in the back of the show. For the first half, uh, we're going to pay tribute to the star of The Holdovers, a man named Paul Eugene Giamatti. I think I remember that right from his Wikipedia page. His middle name is Eugene. Um, but you know, Paul Giamatti is someone who's been in the movie business, the the acting business, for years and years and years. Let's do a little trivia right off the top. Peter, do you know what Paul Giamatti's first film acting credit is? Um, no, I don't. It is from 1989. And it is a movie called I Madman. And it's a, this is from Wikipedia. It's a supernatural slasher film directed by a director named Tibor Takax, who's a Hungarian oh, Canadian. Yes, that's right. Giamatti's first work is Canadian. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really nice. It's really come together. Um, So, you know, he's been in the business for, oh, Edward. Paul Edward Valentine Giamatti. Anyway, I don't know where I got Eugene from. Um, so he's been in the business for a long, long time. Um, he has received, but despite that, like being a well-known actor, being a very accomplished actor, he has only received one Academy Award nomination. So trivia part two. Peter, do you know what movie Paul Giamatti was nominated for? Um, Cinderella Story? Uh, close. It's half marks. It was Cinderella Man. Oh, right. Cinderella stories. The Lizzie McGuire. Uh, I think it's it's a, a kids class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No good honor for that. It was a good film. Yes, Cinderella story was where Hilary Duff was modern Cinderella with Prince Charming Chad Michael Murray. How I know that off the top of my mind, I'll never know. But uh, yes, he was uh, the trainer Joe Gould in Cinderella Man, which is uh, Ron Howard movie starring. Uh, Russell Crowe and Renee Selwiger. Um, so I think that's a, a relative catastrophe that this <laughs> is <laughs> is uh, Paul Giamatti's only Oscar nomination is for Best Supporting Actor in a movie that Peter confused with one starring Hilary Duff. But yeah. um, um, we're gonna I'm, I'm that. very surprised American Splendor didn't win like he didn't win for that. I just kind of assumed it's uh Mm. It won an Oscar or something of that nature, but no, you're right. Uh, he also apparently doesn't have a wax statue yet. Is that um, right? 
Yeah, apparently they've worked hard on it, but enough signatures weren't got. So um, <laughs> apparently it's still possible to get them in. So, you know, keep it up, everybody. Oh, Let's hold, get them hold, a wax statue. Hold on, hold on. I want to just explore this for a second. Uh, you can petition for who gets a wax statue? Yeah. Or uh, in particular, they made one for Giamatti. You can petition to get Giamatti one. Okay. How many signatures do you need? I think it was like 500,000. Well, there was really? a time limit. But I think they're okay. still they'll, they'll take it in. Interesting. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna explore this later on. Um, yeah, you mentioned American Ex- Splendor, which uh, may come up on one of our lists. Um, Sideways is another one, although you know that that did get. Uh, I think Thomas Hayden Church and Virginia Madsen were both nominated by that for that one uh, at the Oscars, but I don't think Giamatti was. Um, That's so strange. Like I don't. I view when I think of Paul Giamatti, I view like critical acclaim. When I think of Thomas Hayden Church, I think more of like Wings. It's San- yeah, Wings or so sitcom or Sandman and like the third Spider Man, right? Yeah. It's weird that he got the uh, the critical honor for that, whereas uh, definitely should have been Giamatti. Yeah, it is interesting that you know he he has had this sort of like very fulfilling career of critical acclaim, but. Um, like awards legitimacy seems to have escaped him. All right. So keeping all that in mind, uh, we've prepared three, we've each prepared three highlights from the works of Paul Giamatti. And uh, keeping in mind that he has been sadly underrepresented at the Oscars. That may change with the holdovers. We'll get into that later though. Um, But Peter, why don't you uh, give us your first Giamatti highlight? Okay. So I just want to start by saying, uh, because of my age, the common Paul Giamatti was not in a lot of cr- like critical acclaim. So this is like nostalgia. But I also think um, for the enjoyment of kids, he did a great job um, in a couple I picked. Uh, okay. I chose the 2002 classic Big Fat Liar. <laughs> yeah. Sean Levy directed <laughs> Frankie Muniz, Amanda Bynes, and the main villain, Paul Giamatti. Um, and I think this is before a few of his other villain roles. So it's, you know, it's a good start for that. If you, if you don't want him as the main, you want him as the villain. It's a good start. Mm. Um, mm. but it's also, I think just historically speaking, it's a good, cause like Frankie Munez, I know he still he, he cruises around in, in cars. He does something of that nature. Uh, but Amanda Bynes, you know, she's not really around anymore. So um, with both of them in it, it's like one of the only sources regarding them both together as stars. So it's, it's you know, historically important for that. They're both big back in the day. Um, but in particular, I actually think Paul Giamatti is a good villain. He's he's very perfect kind for a kid's film. He's definitely evil. You hate on him. But there's there's enough humor. He's not like killing people or anything like that you know um and i think the his physical comedy is quite is quite good again if you're a kid right i haven't seen this since i was a kid i re- recently rewatched and it was fine but especially if you're young it's some good physical he gets um like spray painted with like blue and it's, it's funny it's funny stuff he gets tied up it's just zany <laughs> zany physical comedy antics and he does a good job with it Mm-hmm. Uh, and the film too um, it came up because Sandra Oh is a surprisingly heavy character in it 
and um she was you know mm. married to the director we'll be discussing so it's another reason why the film popped back up into my mind uh yun 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 john cho's in it it really is a 2002 classic in my opinion and um especially if you're looking for an evil giamatti it's i would say <laughs> i would say hit this up especially if you have kids like if you have kids this one's good and it, it still holds up it isn't dated in any way really um but yeah i know like critically it wasn't that great but for me nostalgia and the history of kids films of the 2000s i think big fat liar is a great paul giamatti film hmm interesting um interesting because i mean you you know we talked about uh thomas hayden church kind of disappearing you know um you know, Amanda Bynes, you know, had her kind yeah. of famous, uh, I guess, break, uh, breakdown. Um, she hasn't really made a comeback or I mean, that's not even to say she's really interested in a comeback. Um, although I, I am learning her conservatorship was ended in 2022, which is, you know, at least good for her mental yeah, health. She's actually doing like, OK, right now. She was supposed yeah. to for the first time in a while be on um, the Nickelodeon game show or uh, award show but she I couldn't see. she was um out on the streets and she was kind of going kind of schizophrenic but she called the ambulance on herself and like she's mm. doing good right now so good. yeah i think she just focused on herself um but she's actually like doing good mm. she's treating herself as good as she can good um i also kind of went off uh the beaten path for my first pick um there's a movie that was released in 2007 called Shoot 'Em Up, and it stars Clive Owen as uh, this sort of like misanthrope, uh, essentially homeless man named Smith, who's just sort of minding his own business, and uh, he sees a, a woman being chased by some guys, and uh, a pregnant woman, and uh, he kills the guys, and that kicks off this 90 minute long shoot him up um where the bad guy is paul giamatti now people i think misunderstood this movie when it came out it is a cartoon it is an ultra violent cartoon starring real people but it is a cartoon (laughs) because the very first scene is of clive owen eating a carrot which is an obvious (laughs) reference (laughs) to uh bugs bunny cartoons and if clive owen is bugs bunny Paul Giamatti is Elmer Fudd and uh, he is uh, he's kind of sadistic. He's kind of rude. Uh, He's using his uh, his physique to his advantage. He's uh, he's pudgy. He's a man who's very comfortable. He's never really been challenged by someone like Paul G like um, Clive Owens Smith before. And so he kind of relishes the opportunity to essentially meet his match. Um, So, uh, it's pure mustache, well, full beard twirling in this case, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> mustache twirling villain territory. And uh, Paul's uh, clearly having a lot of fun. It's, it's uh, for the most part, it's a three-hander because it's Clive Owen, it's Paul Giamatti, it's um, Monica Bellucci as uh, she's a, a sex worker whom uh, Smith entrusts with the, the newborn child as um, they're going about uh, trying to save the save the baby and uh, save the day and kill all the bad guys. Um, although you do get a couple of great, like really great, like Canadian character actors in small roles too, um, including uh, Julian. 
oh what's his name julian julian richings that's right um as as like he, he's always like playing a henchman because he looks like he was born to play uh an evil henchman um stephen mccaddy as the uh <laughs> as the the gun uh company ceo um it's just it's a lot of fun to beginning it from beginning to end and it's it's pretty much all about the rivalry between these two um these two guys smith and uh the the giamatti character carl hertz so it's you know a lot of great scenery chewing from giamatti um he gets to play it totally bonkers because owen is playing it straight um so yeah it's just a, it's just a good time and you know I, I saw somebody on um online today talking about you know the length of movies now because apparently the new hunger games movie is like two and a half hours long yeah going, over going yeah going on to three hours long this is a very tight 86 minutes with the credits so <laughs> proper uh, yeah yeah <laughs> it's just good fun it's good clean wholesome ultra violent fun uh okay let's get to your number two then yeah, so number two for me is one that I think has a bit more of a positive reception. Mm. Um, although I, I always forget its reviews weren't uh, definitely not critical acclaim. Um, mm. But my second pick is Milo's Foreman's Man on the Moon. Ah. Um, so even though a Jim Carrey and Danny DeVito standout um, and Courtney Love as well, uh, Paul mm. Giamatti is also in it and he's I'd say it's the fourth most common. Um, everybody beneath him, kind of not even really a character. Um, but what's fun about him is he plays a real person. He plays Bob Smuda, uh, American writer and bestie of Andy Kaufman. And mm-hmm. even though Danny DeVito is great in it, he plays the manager, George Shapiro. Paul Giamatti as Smuda also plays Tony Clifton. Because following Andy Kaufman's death, his character, Tony Clifton, was taken over. So there's a lot in Man in the Moon um, where Paul Giamatti is uh, Kaufman. He's, he's played as Tony Clifton. And I swear to goodness, he does an outstanding job. Um, when it comes to like Andy Kaufman, like the bongos and everything, like Jim Carrey, 100%. When it comes to Tony Clifton... Well, Giamatti above him, I would say. He really does mm. a uh, a great job of it. Um, Bob Smuda also just naturally uh, slimier. So, of course, Tony <laughs> Clifton really uh, comes off that way. Um, mm. And I just really appreciate and respect Paul Giamatti being, um, in addition to Jim Carrey, playing multiple roles and having to kind of uh, follow along with jim carrey and his his method acting antics about it you know paul giamatti did not go about it in that way but still did uh just as great a job um and something really beneficial too about this film and giamatti's role is i forget its name but there is a netflix doc about the making of it and he is a huge part in that and you can tell the the stress he dealt with aside of uh, jim carrey you know both are doing tony clifton paul giamatti (laughs) doesn't need to be a madman right um yeah (laughs) So it's just, it's really, you, you respect him more watching the doc. Um, even though I would say it doesn't, it doesn't make me hate him, Carrie. It's still like a great role. It's just, mm. if anything, mm-hmm. it makes Paul Giamatti just look better, look, look really great. Um, so yeah, even though he's not the main, um, man of the moon, Paul Giamatti, and he does have a very heavy role. And it's a, uh, it's a great one that at certain points overcasts the Jim Carrey, which is saying a lot because he does do a, a outstanding job. So yeah, number two, 
Man the Moon. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, this is the Jim Carrey part of his career where he's like trying to be like I'm a serious actor, and I mean, you know, he 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 does prove it for the most part. You know, he's he's he did a lot of great work from a show. Um, I, I, Majestic's not a great movie, but he's good in it. Um, so yeah, it it takes a lot, sort of, to you know walk into this where you have Jim Carrey doing capital A acting. It's Milos Forman. Mm-hmm. And uh, all all this going like and all the cameos in it too like the insane number of cameos like David Letterman who never does movies has a cameo in the Man on the Moon. Well, and um, uh, who uh, Giamatti plays Bob Smuda is also in it. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's 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 a hell of a thing to walk in there and kind of steal the show at times. Um, hmm, which one do I want to do next? Uh, well, we already mentioned it already, but American Splendor, where Giamatti plays Harvey Pekar. Um, this was kind of, I, I don't want to say it was his breakthrough in terms of like get, starting to get serious attention, but I mean, there's, there's definitely a pivot around this point, you know, 0203. Uh, I would say my earliest memory of him is 2003 when Bookshelf mm-hmm. started airing it. So I, I would American totally Splendor. agree with you. He was already known, yeah. but he became just like, yeah. just his name was known. We didn't have to see his face. Like just Giamatti became a known name. Yeah, because he he had a starring role and um he or he was the star in American Splendor playing Harvey Pekar, who created a graphic novel called American Splendor. He was a guy working at a VA office in Cleveland, uh, VA Veterans Administration. If you're not uh, politically inclined on the American side of things, but uh, you know he's someone who feels like he's gotten sort of like a rotten lot in life. He likes comic books he likes jazz he's kind of a misanthrope uh his wife leaves him just when he's like uh unable to talk um well and and apparently because she didn't like their using quotes here plebeian lifestyle so yeah yeah (laughs) plebeian lifestyle which is a great phrase um but he he at this moment where he can't talk back she decides to leave him um but I mean, it's just, it's great work by Giamatti because it's just like, it, it's so internal. Like there's a way he carries himself. Like he doesn't, it's one of those weird performances where he doesn't look like Harvey Picar. And you know what Harvey Picar likes because there's Harvey Picar's in the movie because it's this weird amalgam of uh, documentary and narrative. Um, it's, it's meta as well because there's a, a play based on american splendor in the movie so you have mm-hmm. you have harvey you have harvey Picar, you have paul giamatti playing harvey Picar, and then you have harvey Picar and his wife uh his second wife played by hope davis going to see this american splendor film where i if i remember right donald logue is playing harvey Picar. so you get like this whole meta narrative um but yeah just like watching he's so mesmerizing just as as harvey Picar, like going grocery shopping and just you know you you could feel him carrying his like misery around on his shoulders. You like you can see that, um, <laughs> you can see that uh, on on the way he carries himself. It's just it's a remarkable physical and and uh, sort of emotional performance too because he's insanely likable as Harvey Picar. I'm not sure if Picar like is just someone who thinks he's unlikable, um, or he you know 
is is one of those people who puts on an, uh, a, a, an unlikable air about him so that he doesn't have to worry about people not finding him likable or, or whatever it is. But um, I, I feel like Paul Giamatti really captures some of those nuances and uh, it, it, it's, it's a really great performance. It, and it, he's incredibly, he does this really great job of, of not making Harvey Picar unlikable so much as like, Oh, that's just Harvey. You know, it, it, he, he creates it. He really creates this kind of warmth based on this idea that Picar thinks he's unlikable. And uh, it's, it's a real, it's a real tightrope of a thing to do is to, to make someone on, to make someone likable as they're trying to make you not like them. And, uh, that's one of the great things about American Splendor. Also, it's just it's got this great kind of granola crawl quality. It feels like an independent movie from <laughs> the early two thousands. Like they just went out in Cleveland one fall and shot the movie, and they didn't have any permits, and they just were flying by the seat of their pants. It's it's well, yeah. it's it's great fun. Yeah, he's um, I just just like on his his bio, he's known as the poet laureate of Cleveland, Harvey Pecker. So that's cool that they filmed it all in Cleveland like that. Yeah. No, it, it that's the great. I mean, that's one of the great things about the movie is that it has a real like sort of authenticity to it. Born in Cleveland, shot in Cleveland. Yeah. Born in Cleveland Heights, died yeah. in Cleveland Heights. That's a true Clevelander right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh he's a character for sure, Harvey Pekar. But like Giamatti was, it was great too, playing Harvey Pekar. Uh, well, it's also part of that fun period where, uh, like, just less than six years after Chasing Amy, where graphic novelists were like a huge part yeah. of some of these film plots, right? Yeah. And then just a few years after this, we finally get the graphic novel films, you know, the real boom of them, Watchmen, 300, and all of that. Yeah. You get, like, in this period, you get Ghost World, which is based on a graphic novel. Yes. And the Ghost World. Yeah. Art World, uh, not Art World Confidential, Art School Confidential, too, is another one that has this kind of similar has a similar vibe to it um a little more a little more they made that one for a couple of extra million dollars but yeah it it, it started something too it it people forget american splendor is based on a comic book people they're not all bad anyway um let's get to number three <laughs> all right number three for me is mm-hmm. the i feel bad it's another uh it's another where he's the villain. Um, <laughs> I picked straight out of Compton, the 2015 uh-huh. pick about uh, NWA, and he plays the evil, evil manager, agent manager, uh, manager um, <laughs> Jerry Heller. Um, <laughs> and Jerry Heller is the one who first got them together, but the signings that he got them and the percentage of money he garnered is just disgusting it's it's unfair and it Mm -hmm. led to you know ice cube suing him and everything um dr dre sued him um one of his antics was he convinced ice cube to sign up but not to get his own like independent agent or there was Mm -hmm. like just a lot of kind of manipulation he did especially on on ice cube um and that actually resulted in ice cube leaving um nwa and just nwa just just california he just went right over to new york with the uh um d1g district one gang you know the black panther kind of party you know it's 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 pretty crazy how um jeremy jerry heller just completely 
pushed him away from from the West. Um, and Paul Giamatti does a does a great role. He's um, as we've already discussed, he's great at being um, a jerk, unlike the one we just, <laughs> just discussed, American Splendor. He yeah. is the viewers are supposed to view him as such in this. He's not supposed to be kind of a grumpy, lovable dude. He's just you hate him and you hate him. Mm-hmm. You hate Paul Giamatti in the film, and that's uh, <laughs> that's fair because Jerry Heller, a very very bad man. Um, and yeah. it's also fun because his role was so strong in it. And he did such a great job showing how evil he is that the uh, Jerry Hiller, uh, I think he's dead now, but he was kicking when the mm-hmm. film came out. Um, and he hated on Giamatti so much. Like he, he discussed how inaccurate the betrayal was and everything. But uh, mm-hmm. it's funny because just based on the way he was talking in that interview, mm-hmm. it was like you were looking at Paul Giamatti. You know, it was mm-hmm. literally Paul Giamatti saying that Paul Giamatti didn't do a good job playing the individual who was actually doing the interview, Jerry Heller. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he just he did a great job in that. I think it's funny, too. It's like my other one. It's a biopic. So I think he's really um, well and American Splendor, a biopic. Right. I think he's really good at doing whatever studies is needed to find the right characteristics of an individual and to make them into a really great character. He knows how to take a real individual and place them onto a screen. He knows what to change. He knows what to switch up. Um, and that's very evident in the uh, straight out of Compton. So yeah, yeah that's my third. That was my third too, actually. Um, really? Yeah it's, yeah, it's great. It's, I, I mean, that was the Oscars. So white year 2015 when straight out of Compton came out. Um, and I, I, I like because of that fact, I, it does kind of surprise me that they didn't nominate him for best supporting mm-hmm. for that. Um, but yeah, like he is good. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Jerry Heller is evil. Um, I, I would say he's no. He's just, he's just a classic businessman. He's, he's yeah. He's slimy. Um, yeah. And, and you know the scene where he meets Easy E and um, convinces him to to let him rep for nwa um <laughs> it's such a great scene because he's talking about like oh i was like i did this for sticks i work with elton john um and then yeah, he's he, people that haven't been famous for for quite yeah, a while yeah easy easy says to him like anyone from this decade <laughs> and you know easy kind of has his number but then jerry turns it around on him and you can sort of see why he would kind of buy into it it it, it's it's funny to, to to see the inter um the, the inter dynamics of the band um because like ice cube i think it's pretty clear in ice cube all along doesn't like buy what jerry's selling at all um even if the other ma- members of the band do um and i'm not sure i'm honestly not sure how much of that is legit but you know it it it, it was they they make it very very personal in the movie because you're sort of seeing things through the eyes of Easy E, and so you get to that That's scene. Exactly. You get to that scene at the end where um, it's laid out for Easy that uh, Jerry's been ripping him off, and then he goes to see Jerry, and Jerry knows what's coming, uh, or at least Jim <laughs> Jerry knows what's coming when they're in the kitchen, and you know um, Easy E's essentially there to fire him, and. Uh, you you see him like being meek. He's like, "Hey, he's it." He calls him Eric. Eric, I've been trying to you know get in touch with you all day, and you know he he's kind of 
he knows what's he coming, does. but he's still trying to be friendly. And then when Easy E says, like, I'm putting NWA back together and we're going to have a reunion and it's not going to involve you. And then Jerry kind of like turns like, oh, you think you can do it without me? It's oh, it's so good. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so multifaceted. Um, and then, you know, Giamatti's wearing this white wig. This is so um, it has this. I mean, Jerry Heller's hair was white at this point. Um, but it, it just adds this sort of like extra level of like, like the the extra, yeah, yeah, like an empty dude, yeah, like it adds this extra even like oh he's like dressed in white he has white hair <laughs> he's he's obviously the the symbol of like exploitative white guy trying to oh, capitalize on his black yeah, talent yeah, absolutely um, yeah and it it just it it. Uh, it just it it looks he looks so oily from the jump, but I mean he's also very defensive of NWA, like the scene where they're being hassled by the police for no reason outside their own recording studio. Um, so I'm not sure. Like, I mean Jerry Heller was a bad guy, but uh, I think no, they show a bit of a, a bit of heart, or at least how like NWA would maybe not exist without them, or at least to the fame that they are. No, for I sure. think that's right, and I think Giamatti does does really well, sort of playing in those margins that uh, Jerry was oily um but not necessarily evil um he saw a meal ticket and he he turned it into an all-you-can-eat buffet which is bad but um he probably wouldn't be too different than a lot of people in the music business yeah it's probably like the majority of of, uh agents and managers so well i mean look at the um, what's his face and elvis uh captain captain uh or colonel 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 Watson Parker. Yeah, and that um, the Scooter Braun guy seems to get a lot of a lot of hate too, and I guess taken I mean, like an exceptional I, amount from former like Lady Gaga, uh, not Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift and such. Taylor Swift, yeah. Uh, Suge Knight, anyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the reason that I referred to Jerry Heller as a villain is because the most recent comments from him before Suge died too are about like how he's just yeah really awful and took the money away from Suge too. But then yeah. I gotta remind myself that like Suge, you know, he's like a murderer. He's, he's wasn't great to easy and stuff either. So yeah. Yeah. I'm letting him warp my mind. I gotta, gotta get away <laughs> from that. Um and I, I don't want to depart without uh talking about Giamatti's uh best work, which Red is Claus? Uh, I was gonna say Rhino and Amazing Spider Man too. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Remember Not, remember uh, Remember when he was in a uh, rhino mech suit at the end of Amazing yes, Spider-Man Two? <laughs> yeah, that's too bad because like I already was not. I, I don't enjoy the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, so like seeing that, it just it just made it worse. It was because it was kind of like because I really like Paul Giamatti and like I really yeah. like Emma Stone, so seeing yeah, them man. in something that was, in my opinion, crap, kind of sucked. Well. Um, there's there's always the multiverse. Anyway, uh, we're gonna take a quick break here, and then we're gonna talk about uh, Giamatti's latest work, which is in the holdovers. You are listening to end credits here on CFRU ninety three point three FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
wonder you're afraid of women. I am not afraid of women. Sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. It's... Dr. Gertler says I don't always give consideration to my audience. Oh. And who is Dr. Gertler? My shrink. Has Dr. Gertler ever tried a good swift kick in the ass? Okay. All right, now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something negative about you? Sure. Just one thing. Just one. Okay, that was a clip from The Holdovers. It's the new film from Alexander Payne, and it stars Paul Giamatti, Dominic Sessa, Divine Joy Randolph, Jillian Vigman, Tate Donovan, and Carrie Preston. Um, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I was, I've been looking forward to this. I saw the trailer back in September, I think. Um, and I've been looking forward to this. It just, uh, I've been the last couple, last month or so going to the theater, uh, or at least the, the galaxy here, they've had this, the, one of the things in the pre-show has been Alexander Payne talking about, I've been making 70 movies, seventies movies all my career. And now I'm finally made one set in the seventies. I was just like, okay, well, that's great, pal. That's fine. Um, yeah, on <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a little pretentious. Um, but having said that, you know, going into the holdovers, uh, boy, it, was it not pretentious at all? I found it quite refreshingly unpretentious. Yes, um, same here. Yeah. For a brief second when you said that, I thought you were talk about it was pretentious. No, 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 not at all. It was very, it was warm. It was just like a warm 70s film about uh, humans, you know? And he's discussed that too. He wishes there was more films about the humans, not um, <laughs> the actions that they make, the mm-hmm. adventurous, Mar- you know, Marvel-related acts that they, they make, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I thought he was kind of crawling up his own rear when he's talking about you know setting stuff in the 70s and you know it's i i get the nostalgia i get especially for that period when it comes to hollywood people the new hollywood and you know mm-hmm. bogdanovich and scorsese and you know cassavetes all those guys um but i mean this is one of those rare movies that are set in the past that it the fact that it's in the past doesn't feel like it's the draw um I'm no, sure. it's never like shoved into your face. It wasn't until yeah. the I think the year was was mentioned that I knew it was the 70s because the difficulty is at private schools, like the atmosphere is still very similar to the way it was in mm. the 70s and prior. Mm. It's still the same getups and everything. Um, mm. But the once you do find out it's the 70s and they go to external areas, um, you see more <laughs> of. Yeah, like it's all 70 structures. Very beautiful um that was like one of my favorite things it's the kind of film because it's about the characters you'll enjoy it on a small screen but i would recommend it for the big screen it's just beautiful shots still shots of new england um if you like the winter season that's when it's set and it it is just gorgeous uh the very first one is just heavily snowing new england region (laughs) by the school and i was already sucked in yeah it's beautifully shot um yeah, I, it, it, it obviously it could work on a small screen, but um, I, I but yeah, there's it, never like real like it's immersive. Never, yeah, yeah, Vietnam isn't mentioned a billion times. There isn't like seventies music blasted on speakers. It isn't in your face. Yeah, it's not obnoxious about like we're set in nineteen seventy, which I I appreciated. It it, it did make me wonder though, like why the seventies setting, um, because it you know it's 
probably something that could be just as easily set today, I suppose. I, I guess the one exception would probably be a bit easier to get a hold of um, Angus's mother and her and his stepfather if they had cell phones. Uh, so I guess maybe yeah, that's, that's what I was the, thinking. Yeah. yeah, and there'd be like a lot more. Like he'd be able to communicate with his friends at the the ski resort, and it just kind of wouldn't. Yeah, there would be, and if he didn't include that, people would make comments like, "Oh, they would have had phones, smartphones." Yeah, it, I guess it adds to the sense of isolation that they're kind of on their own, the three of them. Um, Paul Giamatti, who's the, I think he says he's the H, the ancient civilizations teacher. Um, yeah, Mr. they say history so many times, but he himself, I appreciate, he always corrects it. Classics, right? Because they yeah. are, they are different. Mr. Hunnam, uh, Angus Tully is the one kid who's left behind at boarding school for Christmas. And uh, Mary Lamb, who is uh, it, it just in Wikipedia says she's the cafeteria worker, but I think it's pretty clear she's kind of like the head of the cafeteria. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, well, uh, they, they show, yeah, like at the end when people come back, she's yeah, like she's like ordering the people kitchen. around and she's like, yeah, she's like tasting things and like saying, no, that's wrong, you have to add this. Um, yeah, it's, it's about these three characters who are over essentially unfolds over the two weeks of around the Christmas break. Um, they're the only ones left at the school and, uh, obviously all going through their own individual traumas. Um, uh, Mary's son was killed in Vietnam that year. So she's grieving, uh, her only son. Um, but even then it's the death, not it being a Vietnam war death. That is the focus. It, I mean, this is true. I mean, there, there's also kind of there's a sociopolitical um, connotation to it as well. When she's talking about how she took the job at the school being a single mother because it would mean her son would get uh, a good education, which he could then parlay into a, you know, a post-secondary career. Um, but having said that, she's he still couldn't afford to go to college. So he enlists. I don't, I don't think it was made clear whether he enlisted or was drafted or he just. Oh, yeah, didn't, I didn't even think didn't, about that drafting. Yeah, he didn't put up a fuss when his number came up. He just went and uh, with the understanding that, you know, being a, a, a veteran, he would have access to college benefits um, when he returned. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there, there, there is yeah. there is kind of this there's kind of this undercurrent that she, that Mary understands that. Uh, her son, although he got the Barton educational experience, still had to go to Vietnam. <laughs> well, all his classmates presumably probably got educational deferments or other types of deferments that you know rich kids would have access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, they did. They mentioned specifically a lot of them got into you know um, Princeton or Yale or whatever. The Ivies, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think like she's a black woman. He's I think that's another reason like it's in the 70s. You know, it could that could be the only reason he wasn't given as much a focus for continuation after, you know. But again, that isn't like mm. in your face. It's not like the main the main theme. But mm-hmm. just it being yeah. the 70s does add yeah, a bit more um, emotion to it and yeah. feelings for uh, who Devine Joy Randolph played. Yeah. the, the... And her loss. Yeah, the theme is kind of like these are all kind of th- these are three kind of abandoned people, although they technically have access to this wonderful place, um, this upscale prep school where, you know, there's fine facilities and there's all this talk about Barton men and, and you know, mm-hmm. the the path to the upper echelons of society. But these are three people who are like 
kind of stuck and um how does it feel to sort of be stuck and can you find a way out of it or you know are you just looking at a life of where you're perpetually stuck and you know angus is kind of looking at that where um abandoned by his mom and his stepfather on christmas because they have to go yeah or they have to go on the honeymoon and um uh you know his father is uh well let's say out of the picture that's kind of a spoiler um but yeah you know he's stuck there with mr hunnam who you know has very lofty uh, a very lofty sense of self but we come to learn things about Mr. Hunnam that, you know, he's been sort of disposable his the whole life, or at least he's felt oh, yeah. disposable. Well, and, and all of these findings are spread out beautifully. You know, they're not yeah. like forced upon you. It just naturally comes up. You know, when Hall finds out that new information about Angus, it's when us viewers are. Um, yeah. And it's for a good reason you found out. And, you know, it maybe yeah. leads to the new finding out about Paul. It just all flows naturally together and isn't any new surprise, you know, shoved into your face. Yeah, um, it's it's a wonderful movie about like misconceptions and how mm-hmm. you know you think you think you know a person because um you know you you've seen a type and that you know there's it's it's always kind of like constantly uh, like how do you undermine expectations and and you know how do you overcome your own expectations because um there's that scene in the cafeteria. There's like, there's initially a couple of different holdovers. Uh, there's a couple of other kids who look like they're going to be staying there for the duration. Um, and the one kid who's played by the, the mean kid from the uh, black phone, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> um, who, who, you know, Mary's serving them dinner. And he's saying like, it's crappy. It's like, she's not doing her job. Like, I know she's sad about her son, but can't she cook us like some, Good, something good and um yeah giamatti unloads on him so he has like he has like sympathy for mary but then he has like no sympathy for angus um later in the film it's um it's it's interesting just you know how we process empathy or how we make assumptions how we make allowances for one person and we make assumptions about others I feel like we're talking like really obnoxiously about this movie, which is just like a really funny and fun movie. About yeah, this. that's the thing. But it, it, it's such a well done, very funny and warm film. That, yeah, yeah. No, you've, you've got to talk about about these reasonings. Um, yeah. I also think something because I just kind of assumed when I saw it, um, it's just it's written by David Hemmingson, just like solely written by him. It's not mm. based on um, a book or anything. It's yeah. Just, yeah. An original work, which is always, I think quite special. Um, and I also, I, I, I doubt it was when you watched, but it was Devine Joy Randolph as Mary Lamb was great. Cause I've only seen her in the idol. And I didn't mm. even just her character so different. It took me like a few seconds to realize that it was her, and she just such such a different character, but like outstanding in both. So um, it's just great seeing her get get out and about in the uh, the film world more. Um, yes, I, I mean that's kind of one of the joys of this is that like Giamatti is um, a well known quantity, but um, she's in it a lot uh, heavier than I, than I thought she would be. She's got her own uh, her own story, which is really well done. You know, it goes beyond just you know. We learn more about the kid um, and how she kind of evolves with it. Mm-hmm. 
I was just looking up uh, David Hemmingson's IMDb here because you mentioned him, and I was like, you know, I I don't recognize his work. I don't recognize his name. I don't recognize his work. Uh, comes from TV. Like he he's done um, uh, some stuff people recognize, like How I Married Your Mother. He wrote, wrote one episode of that. <laughs> That's um, funny. American Dad. He worked on. Uh, don't trust the bee in apartment twenty three. I guess we can say bitch. Uh, don't trust the bitch in apartment twenty three. Uh, he wrote for Blackish, um, and then he did a couple of. He did the catch, which is essentially like a romantic dramedy about a con man and a. I can't remember what she did, but she's like a security expert. And then he did Whiskey Cavalier, which was about which was like a romantic spy moonlighting <laughs> thing. So I mean, there's kind of nothing there that says. I guess the closest, maybe like don't trust the B. Like I, it's kind of a comedy with like a character focus. With like yeah, deeply it's flawed. The closest I can yeah. find. Yeah, it's very strange. Lie to me. Um, just very different. Uh, yeah. So this, I'm I, sometimes with writers like this, it's like something that was cooking in their heads for a while, and so it sort of like comes out on the page as this like really well thought out. Uh, thing I understand why the 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 material why this would sort of appeal to to Alexander Payne too a lot of his movies I mean he also needed he he, he needed to like bounce back from downsizing which wasn't interesting I never saw it but I never also there's a reason I didn't see it I, I only heard mixed mixed thoughts about it it's yeah it was an interesting idea but like ultimately like really really flawed it but um. I mean, Payne's movies are typically about like people who are stuck in ruts, um, and are looking for like that one thing that will let them overcome. But you know, you can't. That that's kind of not how life works. Where you'll snap your fingers, do the one thing, and then life is better. Um, and it, it, it's it's it, his movies are really a kind of about how people sometimes have to wallow in their misery in order to um, learn how to effectually uh, essentially get out of it um elections like that where you know this miserable character played by matthew broderick just wants to bring down this <laughs> this girl because he doesn't like her attitude or something you know sideways too um it's you know it's about these sort of sort of like misanthropic characters who um who who lean into their misery before trying to break free of it before realizing that you know you can't just sort of like take off um a cloak of misery and and be a better person that's kind of not how it works it's a process um but i mean i, I will say this is kind of this is kind of more straight up like there's something subversive about election or or sideways um th this doesn't feel like this I was gonna. I was gonna put this on the table. This question, like, is the holdovers a Christmas movie? Oh, I would say it's a Christmas movie. Okay. Well, like Christmas is like a heavy part of it. Yeah, um, it's the kind of film though where you can watch it. It doesn't like have to be on Christmas. Yeah. So if that's the case, though, then is it a Christmas film? I would say this. I would say I do understand people saying it's not because mm -hmm. its focus is more on just the three characters' relationship. Mm -hmm. um with each other and what they deal with in you know the 70s um but like christmas is like a huge part of it too it's like why they're all there there's a lot of beautiful christmas tree um 
visuals and you know like the kind of midway third quarter paul giamatti going out of his way to make it you know a christmas they can enjoy um (laughs) but like i i would understand people saying it's not a christmas film but i i think it is and i would say at the very least it's more of one than die hard because i know there's some people say it is and i would say this objectively is is more of one than die hard my my definition of a christmas movie is always like is is the setting the movie at christmas essential um and no this could have been march break it could have been march break i don't know if the honestly i don't know if the cinematography would have been as great there's a lot of um like winter's really beautiful and winter also christmas it just always brings about feelings of humanity emotions and all that because you know yeah no one's gonna say (laughs) no it might have just added a bit of um just yeah, a bit of wonder to the atmosphere that made uh, every other like emotion and presentation um, come off stronger. Right. No, but no one's going to say to Giamatti, like, be nice to the kid because he was left here over March break. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, um, and I don't know if there's like Thanksgiving breaks or whatever. But yeah, but it, that's that's always why I've saved like Die Hard's a Christmas movie, because if if it's not Christmas, there's no reason for John McClane to going out to visit his estranged wife there'd be no reason for him to be at nakatomi tower because they're having a christmas party he was brought to the true, tower true. A christmas okay. party. so that's that's always been as opposed to lethal weapon which is set around christmas but i don't think there's anything especially christmasy about lethal weapon it's no that just happens to be when it's taking place yeah it's was also i i always think it, it helps when it's released around it too like it's mm-hmm. christmas is a part of it and it was released late october um, yeah i'm I, I was thinking about that because i wonder if it's like it was released a couple of weeks ago um yeah. and i'm I'm thinking like is this too early because it was actually a nice day it was like a nice sunny november day when i went and saw the holdovers and it's no 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 like, it's because it's because now when like everybody starts to watch holiday films it'll be on um like crave or something so it's it like a good be. start to it um it but be. then like, they're even when it's closer it's, to christmas yeah. it'll be available that could be right but yeah it, I, that's something I did want to sort of like ferret out. It's like I I I do think this is a Christmas movie. I think this is Alexander Payne saying like I'm going to make a Christmas movie, but I'm going to make it my way. Yeah, yeah, which I like. I like when it's not like shoved into your face. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it it made it like it 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 being Christmas just added a lot to I think um, Al- uh, Angus's relationship with his dad, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. it just made. Just going off of that, I liked how even though the majority was in the academy, the scenes mm-hmm. where they went somewhere else were really, really well done. The uh, the party mm-hmm. scene and the party the, scene, great, yeah, yeah, and the Boston one are just like it's just so good. Like I don't even I don't I don't know why I don't know if it's just because like I love the cinematography and those like beautiful areas. Um, and I think in the party house, it just showed it's great seeing them talk to people other than each other because it actually shows even further how they're similar with what they're dealing with you know anxiety or whatever and then the christmas scene is like where davine joy randolph mary lamb steals the show and it's it's really it's really well done and it not being in the academy makes that even more hard hard to watch because of what she's dealing with she is so great in that party mm-hmm. scene where she's like in charge of the music and she's playing this kind of sad bluesy music and um she's been drinking and it's not like she isn't going big it's not like about hysterics it's about just like her like just internal misery yeah. um it, it just like 
whatever misery she's been full of because it's her first Christmas without her son. It's um, it's kind of overflowing now. It's not an explosion. It's it's like a flood um, of just like really. And, and uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he plays the, the caretaker of Barton. Um, oh, yeah. He was really good, too. He, he was really good. Every, yeah, every he was. Uh, Nahim Garcia. Garcia. Yeah, he was really good in that scene in, in terms of like being understanding and being gentle. Um, you know, he clearly has like maybe a little crush on Mary. Um, or, yeah, or yeah, but it never least. like never takes yeah. over any of the, any other plot lines. Yeah, and he's like trying to understand her grief and he's trying to be supportive and he's not a hundred percent sure what to do. It's it's a really beautiful scene. Um, yeah, even like the, one of the more minor characters still has like some layers <laughs> yeah. of depth to him, you know. Yeah, because it's easy to focus on sort of like the bigger stuff and the the, the yelling and the the joking and the shouting, but you know that that's like a really great little quiet moment mm-hmm. um, for for Divine Joy Rud- uh, Randolph. Um, she's she's very very good. I would like to see her get nominated. I'd like to see Giamatti get nominated. Yeah, that'd be great. He makes a thing, and I you th- know Dominic Sessa too. He I thought he was really good, and he's like this was apparently his first thing, like his first. It movie. is. It's like his his very first thing. Oh, no, yeah. He was, he was- absolutely great in it yeah. and i think it was really smart for alexander Payne to pick someone who's not famous you just you view yeah. him even more as a student student uh boy boy student whatever their title is um <laughs> i think he also himself is from one i think he's like i think he's so, playing yeah. like a version of himself almost. i think i read that yeah he went that they went uh they went actor shopping at a private school yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no uh, which, which which paid off well and then um yeah. we, we won't like reveal like anything but like when i mentioned anxiety like that is dealt mm. with in a really really wonderful way and really mm. um especially because it's the 70s and it's mm-hmm. it displays how it was a lot more difficult to understand yeah. or, or admit let's just say there wasn't a lot of uh subtlety in the 70s um mm. in regards to mental health um yeah no it's a good time i i i was I was kind of elated leaving it. I just had a really great time watching the holdovers. It's it's a really fun, mm-hmm. funny, um, touching Christmassy movie. So um highly recommend. But yeah, uh, same here, same here. I would it might be I would say Blackberry still number one, but um interesting. The holdover is like top top three without a doubt. Interesting. Well, a couple of weeks and we'll find out for sure. Yeah, That's true, true, true. Yeah. All right. But for now, that's the end of this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can listen to it again by downloading it every Friday from our website and creditsradioshow.com at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or from your favorite app like Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up open up your Spotify app and play End Credits on CFRU. You can stay connected to us on social media or on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. So I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson or my news and politics site, which is keeping me pretty busy these days, at GuelphPolitico.ca. And Peter, where else can people find you on the internet? As per usual, Mr. Tarak on good old YouTube and uh x twitter formerly twitter thank you yep i will not use x in a sentence unless i'm talking no well like you said it's still the the earl is still twitter which is weird yeah and the action is still tweeting like i just i don't get it but whatever yeah i think that's the least of elon's concerns these days but uh stay tuned for more great programming here on cfru 93.3 fm 
CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another end credits, and we will see you then.